0: All right, so if you're willing and able, actually don't stand yet. I want to say something first before we read the passage. Um, we're in the book of Genesis. We've been looking at the life of Abraham. And, you know, remember, remember in, the, in the history of our country, there's been these moments in our, our history, even recent history, where newspapers would, would really throw out these big, huge headlines Big historical moments, like like this first one right here. Men walk on the moon. Some of you remember that. Here's another one. Dewey defeats Truman, a shocking headline. The Great War ends, all right? And this last one, Prohibition ends at last. Some of y'all think that's the greatest day in history, right? Well, when you look at Abraham's life, what were the big headlines? Well, certainly, when Isaac was born to these two very old people, there would have been a, if there was a newspaper, there would have been a headline that Sarah and Isaac finally have a son. And there would have been a picture of Abraham grinning really big, and and he would have said to the reporter, This is the greatest day of my life. So you would think that's the biggest headline of his life. But it's actually not. Genesis 22 is a more shocking, more compelling, more life-giving headline in Abraham's life. It's what he is most known for, this event that we're going to look at this morning. And the headline for it would be this, Abraham puts Isaac on the altar. So if you're willing and able, let's stand and let's read this passage together. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there. He laid the wood in order and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Or do anything to him? For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind them was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the reading of God's word. Every bit of it is true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Amen. You may be seated. So what's the worst thing? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? You know, we can think of all kinds of tragedies, right, to answer that question. But what if the worst thing that could happen to you was to get your deepest heart's desires? I mean, what if the worst thing that could happen to you is to get what you always wanted I mean, we all know stories of people who win the lottery, right? And they say, this is all I ever wanted was to be filthy rich. And then many of them, in very short time, it ruins their lives. The getting their deepest desire ruins them. Cynthia Himmel wrote this. She said, the minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute they become a monster. And then she tells stories of knowing celebrities before they became famous. And she says this, once they were perfectly pleasant human beings. But when they became famous, they became the worst version of themselves. If we look to a created thing to give us our ultimate meaning and hope and satisfaction, it will in time, break our hearts. You know, Paul in Romans, he just literally summarizes all of human history in one phrase. He says, They worship the created things rather than their creator. There were two Jewish philosophers who knew the Old Testament well, and they said this they said, You can summarize the scriptures as this. That the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. That the Bible is full of stories showing the devastating effects of idol worship. So here you have Abraham. No man has ever wanted a son more than Abraham. He had left everything. He had left his father's house, he had left his homeland, his relatives, to go to a land that he had never heard of because God was promising him a son. And when his son Isaac had finally arrived, Isaac, I mean, Abraham would have said in his community, finally, people will know I was not a fool for sacrificing so much and listening to God. Finally, I will have an heir, I will have a future, and I will have a claim because I will become the father of many nations. But now the question for Abraham is, has he been doing all this waiting and all this sacrificing for God or for the boy? Was God just a means to an end? Did He love his creator? Or did he love the boy way more? the thing that he always wanted? Well, take your sermon outline. let let's dig into this test. First, we see the call, the call. You know, if you read through Genesis 12 up to 21, you would think... That the climax, the greatest triumph of Abraham's life is the birth of Isaac. That this is the climax of his faith and obedience. But that's not the case. Because in Genesis 22 it says this. After all these things. So after everything, we're now coming to the climax of his life. After all of these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham this is the test. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So what is this test all about? It's an idolatry test. God is going deep, deep into Abraham, getting below the surface to the very deeper problems of the very heart of Abraham. And, and it's the ultimate test. Because Isaac, at this point, just means everything to Abraham as God's call is making clear. In fact, in the original language, God doesn't even use the boy's name, Isaac. He just says, your son, your only son whom you love. And in this passage, the word son is used 10 times, emphasizing the meaning of it. Abraham's affection had become over the top adoration. You know, God wasn't saying to Abraham, You can't love your boy. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, You cannot love your son so much that he becomes an idol. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, Sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even good things, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us, enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. You see, all of our sin, all of our problems are symptoms of a deeper problem. Underneath every external sin is an idol, a false god that is eclipsing our affection for God. You know, Martin Luther said this. He said that really every sin, everything broken in our lives, can usually be traced back to just breaking the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me. Psychologists and uh, researchers have found that often child abuse happens not because parents love their children too little. But because they actually love them too much. When I was in high school, I played a varsity sport in Dallas. It was a, a big school, a top notch program, but I was, I was an average player in this uh, top notch program. Hard for you to imagine, right? But I was just average. But you know what? Being average felt like failure. Why? Well, you're average, and it's made you feel like a failure. You know, you're average, your kids fill the middle of the bell curve. They're average, and it feels like failure. You want your kids to be all stars, you want them to be on the top. Uh, A list. You want them to get the best scholarship, go to the best colleges, but they're just average, and it feels like failure. Do you? This is crazy, but do you realize that parents actually get mad at their kids for being average? you get frustrated with them because when you have average kids, it doesn't fill your parent idolatry enough. It doesn't celebrate you enough. Isaac had become Abraham's all-adoring hope that he would not be average. You know, idols show themselves most clearly not in our exuberant joy we have over them, but more often in the anguish we experience when the idolatry is threatened. Most of our intense emotions like anxiety and anger and despair and panic Those emotions are really just smoke. Smoke that is is a result of a fire burning in our heart to an idol. Think about the rich young ruler when he met with Jesus. He went away sad. He went away shoulders humped after what Jesus said to him. Why? What was that strong emotion? He loved his wealth too much. What about the older brother in Luke 15? He was so angry and he would not go into the party. I mean, who doesn't go into a party? Because he loved his self-righteous performance too much. Julius Randall is a uh, NBA player. And uh, his son, his little boy, he loves his dad's team. He just loves his dad's team probably a little bit too much. Watch this. Watch his, his response to a loss. It's priceless. Kai, it's just preseason. I don't get it. The preseason. There's still a chance. No, there's not. We have more game left. Be the <laughs> they lost a preseason game. He's having a total meltdown. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen. He's just a boy. But it's a picture of our hearts. When our idols are threatened, our emotions are strong. We feel like everything's on the line. I was talking to a staff member this week. And uh, they said, so what are you preaching on this week, Adam? And I told them. And uh, they began to relate parts of the story to me. And they were talking about how heart-wrenching and how difficult it must have been for Isaac to, for Abraham to put his beloved son on the altar. And then they said this, I am so glad God does not ask me to do that. And I said, actually, that's exactly what God asked you to do. Let's look at the horror of the test. Still in point one. Now, when many people over the years read Genesis 22, understandably so, they have major objections. I mean, how can you not? This is a shocking story. Some express outrage and they say, I cannot believe in a God who is bloodthirsty. I cannot believe in a God who, who asks for human sacrifice. Many people see this as absurd, that it's completely irrational. In fact, the intellectual atheists of our day, they rage against this story. They point to this one story as evidence that religion is completely evil. Yet, when you look at Abraham here, you would think that he himself would be raging against this command. You would expect him to argue with God, to make excuses, to go round and round with God about how unreasonable this is. Now, remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember that? When God was gonna bring judgment on those cities, and Abraham argues with God about it. He goes to God pleading with him, saying, don't do this. He says, he says if there's 50 people righteous, would you please not do it? Okay, let's just say there's 25. Okay, okay, God, let's just say there's one. He just goes back, he argues with God. But here he does not utter a peep. In fact, the narrative goes to link to, t- to show you his quiet obedience. He, he rises early. He cuts the wood. He saddles the donkey. He gets the young men ready. So what, what's going on? Well, you must understand the meaning of the firstborn in Jewish thought and symbolism. The oldest son, the firstborn, inherited a bulk of the estate and the wealth of the family so that the family could keep all their land together. If you divide your land up, then you lose your wealth and your future. So all the hopes and all the dreams always rested on the firstborn. And the Bible also repeatedly states that because of Israel's sinfulness, the lives of the firstborn were automatically forfeited though they might be redeemed through regular sacrifice. You remember when God brought judgment on Egypt for uh, enslaving the Israelites? What was God's ultimate punishment over Egypt? He took the lives of the firstborn. The firstborn lives were forfeited because of the sins of the family. Why? Well, because the firstborn was the family. So when God told the Israelites that the firstborn belonged to him unless ransomed, he was saying in the most vivid way possible that every family owes a debt of sin. Just like you know it. You know that you justly deserve God's displeasure. So the command here would have been excruciating and overwhelmingly hard for Abraham but it would not have been irrational because after all God didn't tell Abraham, "Hey, go murder your son. Just walk in the tent and kill him." That's not what he told him. He said, "Offer your son as a burnt offering." God was calling in Abraham's debt. Isaac was to die. For the sins of the family. Now, some look at Genesis 22 and they say this oh, Would you just look at Abraham's stellar obedience? I mean, he is so faithful, he is so holy. He is so, I mean, look how he just obeys God in the midst of this hard command. I mean, you know what? We should all just be more like Abraham. That is not what this passage is showing us. Abraham is obeying because he is a sinner whose debt has just been called in. Second, let's look at the questions. Every test has questions, right? You know, there's always questions with the test. So this week, Ray was doing chapel with the little kids, you know, little tiny kids. Their feet don't even touch the floor. And he's standing up here doing chapel with the kids. And he had a question for them. And he asked them the question. And, of course, every little kid does what? They raise their hand. Oh, 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 call me. Oh, 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 oh. So Ray starts calling on the kids. And not only did they not know the answer, they couldn't remember the question. (laughs) Abraham, he knows the question. Abraham was faced with the ultimate question. God is holy so his sin meant Isaac's life was forfeited. So God is holy, but he also knew God was gracious. So, how can God be both holy and still gracious and fulfill the promise? How did Abraham, I mean, you've you're you been a parent? You're a parent? As a parent, how do you get yourself up the mountain to do this? How, how, do, you, how do you move forward? Abraham told the servants, I and the boy will go worship and we will come back to you. Why do you say that? You know what? He didn't go up the mountain saying, I can do this, filled with self will and self talk. No, he went up the mountain saying, God will do this. I I don't know how God's going to remove my debt and keep the promise, but I know that God knows. It also wasn't blind faith, he wasn't saying, This is crazy. This is absurd. This is murder. This is outrageous. Oh, but I'll just do it anyway to be a good Christian. It's not what he did. He said, I know God is holy and gracious. If he had not not believed that he was in debt to a holy God, if he had not believed he was in debt, he would have been too angry to go. But if he had not also believed that God was gracious, He would have been too crushed and hopeless to go. It's because he knew that God was both holy and gracious. He was able to put one foot in front of the other. He was able to see the beautiful character of God, even though he could not actually see how it was all going to be worked out. There was a young pastor. He moved to a new community. And so in an effort to get to know some of the people in his church, he went to visit some of them in their homes. And he went to this one family home and just a few years prior, they had lost their 14-year-old daughter to cancer. And he walks in the door and, and, and displayed kind of almost in the foyer of the house was this big stone, round stone. And on the stone, it just had these words, the moon is round. And so he asked the family, what does this, the moon is round mean? And they told him that During their daughter's struggle and battle with cancer, she kept a little journal. And in the journal, she had uh, hymns written in there and Bible verses written in there. And they found on an index card, as the bookmark, these words, the moon is round. And they didn't know what it meant. So they paged through her journal to try to figure out what these words meant. And what they came to understand was this. When it is dark... And you can only see just a sliver of light of the moon. Or when it is overcast and you can't even see the moon at all, what does everybody know? The moon is round. And when she was in the darkness and the pain of her cancer, and and when she didn't know all the answers to the why, she knew that God was good. She knew that God was gracious and he would be good to her that the moon was round. Abraham moved forward because he knew God's character. And then in verse 9, the, the, the passage slows down a little bit. The narrative slows down. It says, It came to the place where God told him. Abraham built the altar. He, he put the wood on there. He bound his son. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine being a parent? You know, Abraham is shaking. He's dripping sweat. The passage says he raises the knife to slaughter his son, and a voice from heaven shouts, Abraham, stop. Do not lay a hand on your boy, for now I know you fear God, seeing, your, you, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So, what's this all about? Well, it's about God's question. God's question is revealed in his answer. He says, now I know that you love me more than anything in the world. Now, God knew that Abraham loved him. But he was putting Abraham in the furnace to bring his love to come forth as gold. If God had not intervened in Abraham's idolatrous love for his son, it would have brought destruction in their lives. Idols always grow to the point of enslavement until they bring disaster. And Isaac, as an idol, promised Abraham greatness, the father of many nations. Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, Robin Williams, Mindy McCready, Ernest Hemingway, Vince Van Gogh, Marilyn Monroe, All of them took their lives at the height of their success, at the height of becoming and getting everything they wanted. Destruction. There's a teenage girl who wrote this about her phone. My idol is destroying me, but if I smash my idol, then I will disappear. She gets it. She gets it. You see, idols entrench themselves in us so much that they actually take over our identity. And God must intervene. And so we can now see that God's rough treatment of Abraham was actually merciful. To Abraham, it felt like God was killing him, but he was showing mercy. You know, Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham. But he was not safe to have and to hold unless Abraham was willing to put God first. As long as Abraham never had to choose between loving God ultimately and loving his son ultimately, as long as that choice was never put before him, he would never have known how much that idolatry had grown in his heart. We had a uh, family a year or so ago come to our church, young family, and uh, uh, they're a soccer family, And their kids are really good in soccer. I mean, they're all about soccer. And uh, their eight-year-old son, their older son, their firstborn, was uh, they told me he was playing in this soccer tournament in Tampa. And I saw them and I said, hey, how'd it go in Tampa? He said, oh, we won. We won the semifinal game. I said, how'd how'd their boy do? And he he scored five goals. He was the star of the team. And the, the final game, the playoff game was Sunday morning. So to my utter shock, the whole family walks in the front doors of the church. I mean, what happened? Now, I have no doubt that their oldest son argued and fought with them about how he had to go to the game. That he, that, he, that he accused him of being cruel and mean. But they were, they were telling their son, no, we, we worship God on Sunday morning. It was no small thing that they did. They were saving their son. They were saving their family. It is no small thing to put your idol on the altar. It can feel like everything is at stake. Because it is. We often don't know what our idols are until we are faced with a choice. Do I honor God or do I cherish my idol? Even if it's only Soccer. So what's your what's your Isaac? What's your Isaac? What is the one thing if God told you to give up or to do that you just don't think you would have the ability to do that? If you can answer that question, you can find your Isaac. You know, I I have many Isaacs. One is my health. Okay? I I have to be healthy. One is is to be competent in my work. I I must be competent. I must look competent. I must always get it right. Another is my daughter's future. Her, Her future has to be good. So what's God's question for you? Do you love and worship God more than the good gifts he gives you? Now, Can we be honest? You know, can we just not do any kind of fake stuff right now? Do you love God and worship God more than the good gifts that He gives you? You know, if we're being honest, the answer is no. I know it is for me. I just don't think we understand just how much we love the comfortable life that our idols tell us they will deliver. I don't think we understand how deeply that is entrenched in us. So where do you get the power to really put your Isaac on the altar? Third, the provision. Isaac says, Father, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Abraham says God will provide the lamb. So why was Abraham not actually sacrificed? Because the sins of the family were still there. How could a holy God just overlook them? Look at Isaac's question. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? You know, Isaac's question is actually the question. It is the question that echoes down through the corridors of history. It is the question that is almost on every other page of Scripture. Where is the lamb? And the answer to his question is not actually answered in the ram that they found caught in the thicket. The question is answered ultimately when John the Baptist appears on the scene and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, years later, in those same mountains that Abraham and Isaac climbed, there was another firstborn son who was stretched out on the wood to die. And on Mount Calvary, when the beloved son, the beloved son cried out his question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heaven was silent. Nobody stopped them from driving the spikes into his flesh. You know, the good things in our lives that become idols, they're not safe to have and to hold. We need to offer them up. We need to find a way from clutching on them too tightly. You know, if you look at some of your most devastating disappointments in life. If you look at them closely, often you can realize the reason they're so agonizing is because they are your Isaacs. The most painful times in our lives are when our idols are threatened or removed. And we often respond strongly with bitterness or anger or anxiety or are giving up on everything. Or we can walk into the mountains saying, God, I know you're calling me to live without something that is so dear to me, but if I have you, then I really do have all the wealth, the security and love that I can ever need and it will never be taken away from me. You know, you don't really know that Jesus is all you need until it's all you have. Tim Keller writes this. He says, many, if not most of our counterfeit gods can remain in our lives once we have demoted them below God. Then they won't control us and devil us with anxiety, pride, anger, and drivenness. Nevertheless, we must not make the mistake of thinking that this story means all we have to do is to be willing, willing to part with our idols rather than actually leave them behind. If Abraham had gone up the mountain thinking, Oh, all i got to do is put Isaac on the altar. I don't really give him up. He would have failed the test. Something is safe to remain in our lives only if it has really stopped being an idol. So how does this happen? In verse 12, God says to Abraham when he stopped him, he says this, Now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your only son from me. So how do you remove idols? We look at Jesus on the cross, and we say back to God what God had said to Abraham. We look at Jesus, and we say, Father, I see Jesus on the cross for me. Now I know that you really love me, for you have not withheld your only son from me. Now, we, uh, we started with the newspaper, didn't we? Well, let's end with the newspaper. I have a picture of this newspaper cut out on my phone. I don't really remember where I got it, but it's about a girl named Alice who was a camp counselor. Look what it says. At one point, Alice was working at a camp for children with genetic disorders she wondered how one child, L, could be so cheerful even though she neither grew nor could digest food. Then she saw a letter from L's mother. If God had given us all the children in the world to choose from, L, we would have only chosen you. Alice pulled aside Trillian. Quick, read this. It's the secret of life. You see, when God put his beloved son on the cross, he was saying to you, I'm choosing you as my child. I'm choosing you to be my beloved. Well, now you know. Now you know. It's the secret of life. Amen.